0: Today's a Checkpoint Sunday, um, so especially for you folks who are uh, joining us at Church Online, just to uh, let you know to get the elements ready, if you didn't think about that um, before now, prepare yourself so that you can share in this celebration of the Lord's death, that we choose to remember Him. Uh, we're going to give you a workout today on reading along, so you've, you've already had to do it twice, this is a, a high-participation Uh, kind of service. We're not going to ask you to go up, down, kneel, stand, sit, kneel, stand, sit. We're not going to do that, but uh, if you could read along with me, perhaps you've heard of this before. We're going to read together Psalm 23. So, um, get that ready. As we do this, we're continuing on in looking at Psalm 23 and seeing... um, looking into it more deeply. The Lord is my shepherd is where we're going to start. So Psalm 23, verse 1. This time we're going to use the NIV version. Last time we used King James. Um, NIV for today is what we'll be doing. And you'll see that some of the wording is a little bit different. And so when you, when you hear that, don't think that it's so much just different as what's the nuance that, that is in there that come out. Okay, so Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in beside green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Verse 3. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for His name's sake. For even though I walk through the darkest valley. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Five, you prepare a place before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Six, surely... Your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Today is the restoration of relationship. And it's all about relationships for us, isn't it? I mean, we we, we need them, Uh, we want them, we weep when they break or are broken. We are ecstatic when they bloom. Our God is a God of relationship d- displayed in the Trinity and we, we are made in His image. So in His image He created us so relationships have got to be part of what that means. Throughout our lives we are constantly Uh, looking to balance and juggle, working out how to deal with four key relationships. There's our relationship to God. We got to figure that one out. Our relationship to each other and all of the different each others that there are. Our relationship to creation and perhaps the most convoluted, our relationship to ourselves. We are discovering new nuances, constantly new intricacies, things that we thought we had a handle on and now we see that we didn't. And just when we think we figured it out, just wham, there comes a curveball. I didn't see that coming. Relationships. In 2020, uh, Disney and Pixar released an animated movie that tackled kind of an uncommon subject for a family film. The afterlife, but not like a ghostly version of the afterlife, like in the haunted mansion. To to be on to be more accurate, I guess the, the film is actually about the afterlife and the beforelife, and uh, it reinfor- It's called Soul. Maybe you saw it. It reinforces a popular assumption, and no doubt you have come across this assumption more than once. You hear about it. It's spoken of regularly, and it's sort of summarized that humans possess parts. Sometimes people say three parts. Sometimes people say two parts. There's a physical component, the body. And there's a non-physical component, the soul. And unfortunately, when we read the word soul in our English translations of Scripture, we can kind of impose our culture, this cultural assumption onto that text. It's not really your culture. We, We adopted it into our culture a long time ago without really knowing that we did it. It's rooted in Greek philosophy. And so when you came today, you didn't know that you were actually a Greek philosopher, did you? Well, you're not. Uh, I mean, you, you, you probably have not even really ever thought that much about it all, you've just kind of accepted what was around you, this is what people say, this is what I heard, I just say the same thing. And when we do that, when we just allow that to come in and we don't critically analyze what's going on, we, we, we find out later that we have accepted um, this ancient Greek philosophy and, and doing that we can, we can miss the real meaning of the word as it's actually being used in and throughout Scripture. So, for example, in Psalm 23, which we just read, David declares that the good shepherd refreshes my soul. In other translations, he says he restores my soul. Now, when we read that, we should not limit the word soul to mean the non-physical self, as if God only cares for part of us. We should not assume that God is only interested in saving souls. I don't know about you, but that's kind of the language that that I heard more when I was growing up. I heard about soul winners and let's go uh, let God save your soul and let's go harvest some souls, let's go soul winning. Oh, those poor souls, over 1,500 souls were lost when the Titanic sank. As if the material, the bodily parts of us, which he also created, are disposable and, and, and they're not worth redeeming. It gets you to wondering why God put this super awesome soul in this lousy, fragile body. Like, what was He thinking when He did that? So the elevation of the soul, or the spiritual, and the diminishment of the body, or the the material, the physical, is not biblical. It's not what the Bible says. It's not what the Bible reveals about the way that God made us and how he chooses to relate to us. So careful now if this is playing in your head, because it's actually a really old heresy called Gnosticism, which the apostles and the the early church leaders strongly opposed. And you're going to see regularly as you go through the New Testament, especially if you you read through uh, the letters that Paul wrote and and John, uh, the teaching the churches that he is ministering to, churches that he planted, how to deal with, how to correct these false teachings that are rising up all around these churches that he's planted. He says, don't live like that. That's not the way to go forward. So the word soul is often used in the Old Testament to mean life, uh, the living being, or or even the whole person. It does not refer merely to the non-physical part of a person. Therefore, when, when David celebrates that God restores his soul, he's saying Yahweh cares about his entire life in all of its facets. God brings renewal and sustains our strength in every way. Our Lord is a restorer, a fixer, a healer. It is a repeated and unavoidable truth of Scripture. We do not follow a God who replaces, but a God who redeems. And it's absolutely fantastic news for us to hold, hold on to. You come back to this when the world feels dark all around you. So let, let me say it again so that you can hear it again. And, and as I say this, think about what it means and let it sink into your dry, into your hurt, into your lonely, into your broken, discouraged heart. We do not follow a God who replaces but a God who redeems. And He is not interested in just a part of us, but all of us. Jesus reveals God, Heavenly Father, to be shepherd who will leave the 99. He leaves the other 99 sheep to recover the one that is lost. He abandons no one. And when he's re- reunited with the flock, the Lord rejoices. He does not tick a little tick on the clipboard. He rejoices. Likewise, God is not in the business of redeeming one tiny, tiny little individual part of who we are, but every part of who we are. And when that happens, he rejoices. Imagine that, as happy as you are to be restored, to have this sense of forgiveness, to be found, to be rescued, to be reclaimed, to be, to be restored to our worth, to experience grace. The good shepherd rejoices even more than we do, <coughs> but not for the reason that we might imagine. Okay? When we restore, and when we say we, I, I, don't, I don't at all mean me in this case, okay? Don't get me wrong here. But when we restore a broken car, like we all do, right? When we restore a broken car, we rejoice because it became useful again. And many of us have been conditioned to think this way about ourselves because of church traditions, because of the way people have spoken that emphasize a a missionalism, activism, and volunteerism. We think that God wants to restore us primarily to use us. And honestly, we... We don't always like the way that sounds, right? It's nice to be in involved. It's nice to be included, but used? I mean, I don't, I don't know if I like the vibes that being used always gives off. And so that's why I speak of working in partnership with the Spirit of Jesus. We are not overwhelmed. We are not forced. We are welcomed in, equipped, and given opportunity. We participate, sometimes like through generosity, generosity in our time, treasures, and talents. Do you see how that fits? And that's the whole person, time, treasures, and talents. It's not just part of us. Okay, so not only is this a flawed view of human value, only useful, just emphasizing that one aspect of our being rather than the whole person, but it's also kind of an unflattering vision of God's power, Do you really think that the Almighty Creator of the universe needs you the way you need a car or need a computer? The way we approach God uh, and, and consider God, it matters. It shapes the way that we live, and it can also form holes within us. So ask yourself, what does God really care about? Think about this. God is our heavenly what? What identity does that give me? (coughs) And what do I believe that he cares most about? So if I approach God uh, as a heavenly judge, then that pushes me towards being a legalist. And it makes me believe that God cares most about my sinfulness. That is one view. Here's another. If I see God as our heavenly boss, then I can become a missionalist and believe that God cares most about my service. If I approach God as my heavenly therapist, then I become a consumerist and I live my life believing that God cares most about my happiness. So in all of these cases, when things don't go right, I have a negative view about myself and a negative view about God, and the whole thing kind of stops. But but if I can navigate through all these, and I can genuinely experience God as my heavenly Father, the way Jesus describes Him, then that makes me a Christian a child of God. And then I will grasp this deep, abiding, transformatively powerful truth. Then I can move through life understanding that God, my heavenly Father, cares most about my presence. And He loves me. He loves you. That shapes the way that we go forward. It makes our decision-making process so much clearer, so much cleaner. Because I can recognize right away, I'm not perfect, but I am in pursuit. I'm not all put together, but He wants me here anyways. My presence with God and His presence with me, that's what He desires, and that's how He sees me. Not what I can do or what I can obey or what I can give, but myself, my me, my essence. I give him my time, my treasure, and my talent, not because I have to, but because I am free to. Now, Jesus tells three stories in Luke chapter 15. He tells the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. None of them are about the restoration of usefulness, but the restoration of presence. The return of each lost item provokes a celebration because the relationship between the shepherd and his sheep, between the woman and her coin, and the father and the son has been restored. Similarly, God rejoices at the restoration of our life, not so that he may use us, but because he longs to be with us us. He delights in being our shepherd, and we are invited to delight in being his sheep. That's a picture of the relationship, and this is, this is the way that Jesus himself describes it. It's straight out of the mouth of Jesus, so it's not something that uh, someone else just read into it. This, is a, this was a propaganda. He initiates this idea. So first, let me give you the context of where we are, why he's explaining this. Why is he telling this story? So we're going to go to Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners are gathering around to hear Jesus, okay? People on this side. Verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law on this side muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So that's the context. It's what these people just said, okay? To be pure, we can never mix with the impure. We've got to separate. We've got to draw a line. We've got to make a distinction. Don't let them influence you. He calls that whole notion into question. He calls into question the idea that God cannot, that God will not be in the presence of the bad people. So what does that look like from Jesus' perspective? What is it he's trying to teach this group of people here so they understand. And this group of people here so that they can be freed. Jesus is the complete visible representation of the invisible God. What does that look like? Verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Verse 4. Something they'd understand. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Now, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? 5. And when he finds it, he joyfully picks it up, puts it on his shoulders, six, and goes home. And then he calls his friends and he calls his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. Seven. I tell you, and I tell you, in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over Ninety-nine righteous people who do not need to repent. He leaves the ninety-nine to go after you, to go look for me. And truly, it's humbling to be sought after like that, to be known deeply, fully, embarrassingly, and to still have this holy God come after us, but not for condemnation, not for punishment, but for rescue and relationship. So it is important for us as a church to remind each other of these things because we can all get pulled into distraction. We can all get pulled by the forces of what is happening in the immediate, the right now, all around me. It's it's, it's one of our jobs. One of the reasons why we gather is to remind each other to stop what we're doing, to remember. Because when I don't stop and I don't remember, I can become indignant, and that's a common description of the way that we feel around others. It's been growing over time. We're getting better at it. We're offended. How dare you? Hey, how about how I feel, right? How about what I want? What about the fact that God doesn't like all of them bad people who are doing all their bad things? We should tell the bad people about that, My eyes are drawn down and around, and I begin to focus on the swirling sea of Galilee. My eyes go off Christ, I begin to sink, I am caught up, and I'm overwhelmed in the surf, the spray, the tumultuous turmoil, because it's all true, and it's all real, and it's all happening, and it's all right now. It's all that I can see. But it is not all that is true. And that's why we emphasize the, the eyes-up spiritual practice, eyes-up on Jesus. We never deny what's happening around us. We don't pretend that it's not there. We just continually choose to place our eyes on Jesus. We remind each other of that. I know that's true. I know that's hard. But this is also true. Jesus first, everything else after. Jesus first, Then, together, we can deal with that swirling sea that you were just talking about. Eyes up on Jesus first uh, helps us to understand this world that we live in, because then we were able to put it all in the proper place, the proper order, and the proper perspective. And Jesus displayed for us, the way that he went into his day, his week, his ministry, his life, he displayed it as a model for us. What's a way that I continually have my mind, my eyes, my focus, my heart on God and what God would desire? When I do that, I will have the right perspective so that I could deal with what's happening around me, but not alone, always consciously with God. What's a way that I can do that? How does that work out? What's a life skill? What's a habit that I can be involved in that will help me to face the tumultuous sea and put it in the right perspective so that I'm not overwhelmed and swept under? It's not what you think. Matthew chapter 20 verse 25. So Jesus called them together and he said talking to his disciples You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. And the the truth is the disciples of that time are saying, oh yeah, we know it. That's why we'd like it. We'd, we'd, We'd like a little bit more of that. Once your kingdom come in Jesus, I'm ready to go with you. I'm ready to be in charge. I'm ready to dispense a little of what I've been dispensed. I'm ready to be the one who is now able to push people aside. Let me be in charge. You know that this is what the Gentile rulers do. You know that their high officials exercise authority over them. 26, not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. 27, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. 28, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He came not to be served but to serve. It was a way to focus, to stay on mission, on point, to stay in right relationship with God, to stay eyes up to connect with his heavenly Father so that he could put everything in the right perspective, never denying what was happening. But it was a way to make sure that he would be living out the kingdom of God, that he would be about bringing the kingdom of God to life to those people around him. So who who have you served today? Did you think that that was an important thing to do? What about tomorrow? Who could you serve tomorrow? Will you allow the Holy Spirit of Jesus to transform you where you are, what you're in the midst of, to transform you by the renewing of your mind? Will you be reborn? Will you allow the Spirit of God to speak into the situations, the tumultuous sea that you are in, We don't deny it. We don't pretend it's not there. But to deal with this sea, we are eyes up on Jesus first. The way he guides us, the way he said he was going to go about this was to look to serve those who are around him. Does it make sense for us? Do we see that as, here's the solution, here's the quick fix. It was a way to stay focused on God first, to be in alignment with Him, to have my spirit come into alignment, to have my mind focused. Will you allow yourself to be renewed? Will you live as though you have been born again? not not, not just the way that it started, not just the way that it's easy, not just the way that we all defaultly go, but a life that we were born into, a new existence, a new way, with a new mind and new values. Will you live as if you have been born of the Spirit of God? Now that serving of others was highlighted, elevated, elevated, to a level that we cannot even imagine. I mean, we've heard about it, but we shrink from it. Service was the mindset of Jesus as he faced his worst possible day in his life. And when he got there, he didn't say, well, every other day I serve. Yeah, sure, no problem. I will serve on the other days. But today is the bad day. Today is the day that all kinds of bad things are happening to me. So therefore, because the bad things are happening, now I don't serve. Now I don't have that mindset. Today I I put a pause on that mindset. The mindset of Christ, the guidance of the Spirit. Today I pause that because things are hard. Because the sea is tumultuous around me. Today I pause. I change that. And we don't see it as a way to get that clear contact with Jesus, to stay in that clear contact with Jesus. We look at it as a direct opposition. How could I? How will I be able to? But Jesus, his eyes were on God, his heavenly Father first. God, before his own storms, not to pretend that his storms didn't exist, but to put them in their proper place. Eyes up on God so that I can live in the swirling, tumultuous seas. The only way through this is eyes up. The example is here in Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. They sit on the floor. 15, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. 17, and after taking the cup, he gives thanks and said, take this, divide it among you. 18, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 19. And then he took bread. He gave thanks and he broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 20. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. He refreshes my soul. And now we do this in remembrance of, of you, Jesus. We are eyes up on you. So we're going to take communion now. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. As has been our habit, we come down this aisle and up that aisle. Elements are waiting for you at the back. Today, as we're in this process, as we are remembering what Jesus has done, we are going to do what we have already said as we started this service today, we are going to set our minds on things above. We never, ever deny the things that are present and happening around us. We put them in proper perspective and in the proper order. So whatever it is that you have that's happening right now, whatever it is that you're carrying, whatever that heaviness is, first, eyes on Jesus. Then, Lord God, this is where I am. This is what I'm dealing with. This is my stuff. This is what I need to forgive. Hear me. Meet me. So that when I leave today, I will be able to have been reconnected and refocused on you. That's what we do. And if you need to do that alone, and you need some time for quiet preparation, then do that. Today, Unlike what we normally do, I'm going to ask that you would not partake until we can all do it together. So you go collect it, come back to your seat, and then we will partake in the elements together. Okay? Father, thank you for the grace that you have shown throughout history, throughout time, and through Jesus. We pause today. We got lots going on. We've got lots on our minds. We're worried about all kinds of things. We're happy about things that have nothing to do with you, but we give you credit for all the things that we're happy about as well because you are the giver of all good gifts. But today in this moment, we want to remember what you have done, the gift that you have given, the story that you wrote, the opportunity that you have provided. We want to take that time to reevaluate where we are now to come before you. So for my friends that are in this building with me and for my friends that are listening or watching from afar, prompt us today with what we need to hear from you. And give us the courage to respond in honesty before you. And as we come and lay these things out before you, meet us. Forgive us once again. Infill us with your grace, with your presence, so that we might leave today refocused on you, eyes up clearly on Jesus. Be in our midst, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.